Well, good morning. It is so good to be here with each and every one of you this morning. And as I woke up this morning, I stepped outside and I, I saw the, uh, the, the beautiful day that we had today, the, the blue skies, the crisp, cool air. Uh, this, is, this is just some of my favorite times of the year. It's starting to cool down. Uh, I'm, I'm more of a, a cold weather kind of guy, so I really like that. But just everything, the, the leaves have changed colors and, and they're starting to fall. It's just beautiful everywhere you look. And then we got driving, and we were talking about, uh, on the way here, me and Holly were talking about our, our plans this evening. As was announced earlier, we're going to be doing some traveling uh, th this afternoon, uh, and we're excited about that. And then I was reminded, I'm going to be leaving a little early so I can get home before them. And on Tuesday, we're going to be voting. And I'm not going to lie. That brought me down a little bit. <laughs> that brought me down some. And then when we get to the, to the building here, we look and we see the, build, the roof has been painted. And I'm excited by that. I, I, in my mind, I still was not for sure what to think about it. Um, but then, my favorite thing that happens on Sunday happened. Each of you started coming in. I started to see these smiling faces and these faces that, that I know love me and love God and we have gathered together to, to set aside this time to worship Him and I can't help but be lifted up. I can't help but be excited to be here. And, and I hope that, that you share in that, in, in that enthusiasm because we, we certainly have a great, great blessing in the fact that we can come together and, we, and, and just be able to praise our God. Now, if you shared those same thoughts as me about Tuesday and about, about the upcoming election, uh, or any time in your life where, where there is some, some turmoil that is going on or things seem uncertain, I want to encourage you to come back this afternoon because we're going to be speaking about that. We're going to be thinking about that a little bit. Uh, that's going to take up a big part of our sermon this afternoon. But for today, I want to continue... And what we've been studying uh, so far from 2 Peter chapter 1. So go ahead and take out your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we'll be reading from the same place we've been reading the last couple of weeks in 2 Peter. We've been talking about this idea of growing in the knowledge of Christ and in the growth that each one of us needs to be striving for and seeing in our lives and in verses 5 through 8, we, we have read these over and over again, and we're just committing them to our memory and, and committing them to our, our focus. It says, starting in verse 5, For this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind of short-sighted, blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. As we, as we think about these things, and I hope by, by the end of this study that, that these things will just be cemented into our mind. That they are just so important to us. But we have looked that, that in that growth in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we need to begin with a foundation of faith. And we need to add to that foundation of faith virtue, this desire for excellence. 
And, and all the while, while we we're doing this, we need to be increasing in knowledge. We need to be gaining awareness and understanding through study and through experience, especially in things regarding the will of God and the way of salvation. <coughs> but in this, in this, uh, in these things that we are to add, we took a very small look at at knowledge last Sunday morning, and we saw that with our knowledge, we needed to temper it with something. That's what we want to speak a little bit about this afternoon, or excuse me, this morning. We need to temper our knowledge with self-control. There is very much a need for self-control in the Christian life. And that makes sense. Because what good is it to grow in, in knowledge of, of things that are good and things that are bad if we don't have the ability to make a proper use of that knowledge? And that's really what we're going to find that self-control is. But as we really dig into this, I want to take some time to exactly look at and define self-control. I want to look at how we add self-control to our lives. And so by doing, or in doing that, we're going to take a much closer look at self-control. Now, the Greek word that is used for self-control is ekrateia. Ekrateia. That word comes from two words that are, that are put together, in or e, uh, which means self, and kratos, which means strength. Self-strength. That is where the word self-control comes from. Many scholars have sought to define this word, saying it is, it is one who holds himself in, who is able to control himself on the inside. It is a virtue of one who masters his desires and his passions, especially in a sensual appetite. And McKnight, uh, commentator McKnight even said that when this virtue abides in someone, temptation can have very little influence. Self-control is a very big part, <coughs> a very big part of the Christian life. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, a passage that we are all familiar with. We see that it is an element of the fruit that is born by one who is walking in the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, look right down in verse 22. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And in verse 23, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So this is uh, uh, self-control is part of that fruit which we are to bear if we are walking in the Spirit. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 and verse 8 talks a little bit more about it. Uh, saying that, that if, a, if a man desires to, to hold the office of, of elder or overseer or, or, or bishop um, of, a, of a congregation, uh, if, they, if, if a man intends to, to shepherd a congregation, he must be self-controlled. And verse 8 says, be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, Self-controlled. That's very important for us here at Lake Street because that needs to be on, on our minds that to hopefully one day be able to be put together in the way that God desires for us to be put together, to have an eldership that oversees the, the congregation here. And so we need to be looking in our own lives to add self-control in our lives and also in others who might serve one day to encourage them to grow in, in, this, in this manner. And then, of course, 2 Peter 1 and verse 6, as we've already read, Self-control follows our, our knowledge. And that suggests that self-control is something that is learned. And it is something that is required to be put into practice. Self-control is, therefore, the discipline of oneself. The strengthening of oneself so as to live in harmony with the knowledge of right 
and wrong that one has. That is a very, very important part of the Christian life. Partly because God demands that we have self-control. Turn over to Luke chapter 9 for a moment. In Luke chapter 9, we see that it is demanded by, uh, if we want to be a disciple of Christ. I, I take that back. I forgot I put this one on the, on the board. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus was telling his disciples, if you, if you wish to follow me, if you wish to be one of my disciples, it's going to require some, some strong things that you're going to do to yourself. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to control the things that you, that you might want or you might, might desire. In uh, Timothy chapter 2, no, excuse me, Titus chapter 2. Let's flip back over to Titus. <clears throat> Titus chapter 2, in verse 11 and 12. We read here, says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. It is an important element of what God's grace teaches us, that we are to deny or we are to control ourselves. And it is one, it is, it is a, a quality that, that one cannot have and still be a disciple of Jesus. We cannot be a disciple of Jesus without exercising self-control. Paul also talked about how it was required to prevent apostasy. If we want to turn over to 1 Corinthians 9 for a moment. As Paul talked in the very worldly sense in a way that, that the people of Corinth certainly would understand, talking about athletics that was a, uh, the, the idea of athletics was a very big part of, of this culture of this day. And just as an athlete must practice self-control to win a race, we have to practice self-control as well. Read with me 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 24. It says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul realized there was a need. <clears throat> there was a need to keep oneself, one's body under control. Over in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter also talks about this. We have Paul talking about the need to practice self-control. Peter, again, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, talks about how those who, who follow after false teachers, those who were, were being false teachers, were condemned because they weren't practicing self-control, were giving themselves over again to the world. Verses 19 through 20. Says promising themselves or promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Peter talks about this, this inability to practice self-control leads us to this place of entanglement and ensnarement and of slavery. But yet most would agree, and while mo or mo most would say that self-control is very important, 
having learned this. God demands it. He demands that if we're going to be a disciple of Christ, and Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to practice self-control. Paul talked about the need for self-control. Peter talked about the need for self-control. Most would agree with that, but they would also agree that self-control is a lot easier said than done. It's a whole lot easier to say I'm going to be in control of myself than to actually get myself in control of myself. So let's take a look at the development of that. And what we're going to see when we look at developing self-control is that there is a problem with self-control and there is a solution for self-control. Let's begin by looking at the problem. The challenge of controlling oneself is seen throughout the Scriptures. And what we see in all these places we're going to look is that it's difficult Turn over to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 32. In Proverbs chapter 16 verse 32 it says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Uh, It's good for us to to read these Proverbs and then to stop and, and think about them and meditate on them just a little bit. Do we understand exactly what he's saying here? He talks about one who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. But then it says, and he who rules his spirit is better or is stronger or is more capable than the one who captures a city. It's easier to capture and to control and to ensnare or or, or enslave a, a whole civilization than it is to control yourself. It's a whole lot easier to tell other people what to do. It's a whole lot easier to control and manipulate other people. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about controlling ourselves, and that's a very difficult thing to do. James highlights this in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 verse 26 says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religious is worthlessness. So James is talking about how we need to be in control of our tongue. But see what he says in chapter 3 verses 2 through 10. It says, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, whatever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. You hear what James is saying? He's saying, I understand the problem of self-control is hard. And look at the tongue. That's one of the hardest things to control, and yet it is such a small thing. It is a challenge. A challenge that is faced by all men. And when he, when he talked about this idea of, of the boats... And, and the boat's being driven by a small rudder. If you've ever seen inside the, the, the rooms that house the mechanisms for these great big ships, the, the tankers and, <coughs> and these big aircraft carriers and, and destroyers, and these just these huge, huge ships, 
the, the amount of effort that goes in to keep that, that rudder under control so that when they turn the wheel, the rudder turns the direction they want. They, they take great measures, and it takes great amounts of engineering and strength to, to be able to control that rudder. And if that breaks, if any of that breaks, not only is anybody in that room going to be having a really bad day, but that ship is, is adrift. It's lost. It's very hard, and it requires a great deal of effort to be able to control that small rudder. But yet, that very small rudder can steer such a large ship. And as I said, it's a challenge for all those, for, for all mankind. It's a challenge for those who are within and those who are without Christ. Turn over to Romans chapter 7 with me. <coughs> In Romans chapter 7, Paul is, is illustrating in his own life the dilemma of one who tries to follow the law of Moses, one who would be outside of Christ. And in Romans chapter 7, uh, and just read with me verses 14 through 24. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what am I doing? I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But I am doing the very thing I do not want. I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur that the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner of the law of sin, which is my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? We, see, we, we can hear the turmoil in, in Paul's words here. He says, I'm not in control of myself. Myself is in control of me. <clears throat> he says he does the things that he knows are wrongs. He fails to do that which he knows is right. He has been imprisoned by his own self. That is the words of one who is talking about being outside of Christ. But even the words of those who are inside of Christ des uh, describe self-control and the problem of self-control as things such as a battle or a conflict. Look in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh, for the, for the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. It's a, it's a battle. It's a battle that is raging on. Over in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 11, Peter says it's a war that wages between the flesh and the soul. It's a very difficult thing for those outside the body of Christ and for those inside the body of Christ. It's a very real problem, but there is hope. There is hope. Look back over to Romans chapter 7. <clears throat> back over to Romans chapter 7. As, as Paul uh, talks about, and, and as, he, as he ended... There in Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, he asked the question, saying, Who, who will set me free from the body of this death? I'm a wretched man. Who will, who will be able to save me? And the answer in verse 25, thanks be to God 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Christ we are saved. Romans chapter 8 and verse 12 goes on again to say, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We see that, that <coughs> through Christ we are no longer indebted to live after the flesh. And we see that through, that through Christ we have the ability to crucify the flesh. Back over in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, which says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So what we see is the problem is real. The problem is that it's difficult, it's hard for those inside of Christ, for those outside of Christ. It's a very real, real problem. But the solution comes as we crucify ourselves, the, uh, the flesh. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us when we consider the solution? Well, certainly it begins with baptism. Look in Romans chapter 6 with me. <coughs> Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. It says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so, too, uh, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for we who has, for he who has died is freed from sin. What we see here in Romans chapter 6 is that in baptism, our, our, our body of sin can be put to death, can be buried, and we can rise up from that baptism a free man. We can rise up out of the slavery and, and live a life free uh, under God. Look down in verse 14. In verse 14, as he continues on, it says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul is saying here that we no longer uh, live under the do dominion or the rule of sin, or at least we don't have to. We don't have to if we are willing to, to make that sacrifice, to, to allow ourselves to be crucified with Christ. And maybe I hope we begin to see the difference here between Romans chapter 7 and verse 23 and 24. Again, it says, But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who shall set me free from, this, from the body of this death? I hope we see a difference from that, that man that is outside of Christ that says, I am, am torn to pieces. I'm being pulled in different directions because I want to do what's right, but I do what's wrong. I am not in control of myself. And in Romans 6 and verse 4, for the man that has been crucified or that has been baptized, that has crucified that old man, it says, For sin shall not be master over you. I hope we can begin to see the difference, the contrast between those that are outside of Christ and one that is within Christ. But that's where it begins with baptism. It also continues with the Holy Spirit. And we are going to see that we are led by the Holy Spirit. Look over in Romans chapter 8. 
Because as we've already read in Romans 8, verse 12 and 13, without the Spirit's help, we will die spiritually. As we already read in Galatians chapter 5, without walk, when we are walking in the Spirit, we will not succumb to the lusts of the flesh. And I want to tell you, John chapter 16 and verse 13 shows us that the things of the, that the, things of the Spirit are the things which He reveals. So, so when we consider ourselves to being, being led by the Spirit, how, what is it that we have to do? Romans chapter 8 and verse 5. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? It says, for those who are, <clears throat> for those who are, uh, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, set their thing, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. If we are led by the Spirit, then we are setting our minds on the things that He has proclaimed, on the truths that He has revealed. And we see those things in God's Word. The degree in which we set our minds on what the Spirit has revealed, the degree to which we set our minds on the Word of God, is the degree to which we are led by the Spirit. But not only are we being led by the Spirit, we are being empowered by the Spirit. We are given strength by the Spirit. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, a passage we all know very well. Philippians 4 and verse 13 tells me I can do all things through, through Christ who strengthens me. It teaches us that, that whatever God wills for us to do, we have the ability to do it through the help and the strength which God supplies. And the Spirit is His agent by which we receive that power. In Ephesians chapter 3, just hold your place here in Philippians for a moment, but Ephesians chapter 3 <clears throat> In verse 16, we're kind of jumping around, I know, but Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 says that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. That power comes through, through the Spirit we are received and are empowered by the Spirit. And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, we read, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We receive strength. We receive our, our power through the Holy Spirit to do the work of God and the good works that we do and the, the, the strength that we have is God working out His will through us if we are being led and empowered by His Spirit. And again, we might ask ourselves the question, well, how? How does the Spirit empower us? And as we read in Ephesians chapter 6 just a second ago, we read Ephesians 6 in verse, and, and look in verse 17. It says that we are to take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so as we've looked twice now to being led by the Spirit and being empowered by the Spirit certainly involves being uh, consumed with, with time spent in the Word of God. But then back in Ephesians chapter 3, let's see exactly how the Spirit, uh, when, when, when Paul was talking about in verse 16, the Spirit would strengthen the inner man. See what he says before that, starting in verse 14. Ephesians 3 verse 14, he says, For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. We receive the, we are led by and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit as we study and as we apply and as we meditate upon his word and as we are going to God. As we are asking God for the strength that we need and for the power that we need to do his will, to perform in his kingdom and to work for him. I want to tell you that it is not important to understand all the hows that the Spirit works. I don't have to understand exactly how the Spirit leads me and exactly how He gives me the power, but it is important to know that He does. And that if we seek strength through God's Word and through prayer, He will, he will give it. He is faithful in that we will receive. By crucifying the flesh through a union with Christ in baptism, and by being spirit-led and spirit-powered, self-control is something that will come naturally. It is a fruit that is born, as we've already read, by Christians who are living this sort of life. But finally, I want to give some thoughts in regards to the display of self-control. The display of self-control. And, and there is a proper way to display self-control, and there is an improper way to self-control. And I want to look at both of those. But the first, before we, before, as we look at this proper way, I want to notice that it is self-control that we are talking about. This means that this does not involve the manipulation and the control of others. We are to control ourselves. And we should practice a proper form of controlling ourselves, such as bring your own body under, under subjection. As we read back over in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 and 27, we need to make sure that we are controlling ourselves physically. We are controlling ourselves in what we do, in how, in how we act. Are we going to control whether we are going to be idle and we are going to be slothful? Are we going to control ourselves in that we will be hard workers and that we will be laboring in the kingdom? Uh, we even need to control our, our physical desires that we have, whether it be desires that, that are unhealthy to the body, uh, such as things such as gluttony or drunkenness. We need to be in control of our bodies. And we also need to, as we read in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, we need to be in control of ourselves in denying uh, worldly lusts and ungodliness. But as we read Titus chapter 2, if you were to flip over to 2 Timothy, we are told exactly how we are to control that. 2 Timothy chapter, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22. A lot of times when we think of self-control, we kind of think of uh, maybe putting things up on a shelf. I know, like right now, me and Holly have joined a gym. We're trying to control our appetite so that the work that we do at the gym isn't worthless. Uh, and yet, there are three very large bags full of Halloween candy scattered around our house and Halloween wrappers scattered around my nightstand. So I'm, I, well, sometimes our idea of self-control is I'll just take that bag and I'll just set it up on top of the refrigerator or I'll set it over here out of my sight. Look what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. He says, flee 
from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. He says, get away from it. Run away from it. If we are to, to control ourselves and if we are to deny ourselves, we need to run away from things that, that we are trying to control. We need to run away from things that are ungodly. Run away from things that, that cause worldly lusts. And we are not to be in bondage to anything. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. A lot of times we think of ourselves not to be in bondage of things such like, such like drunkenness that we, just, that we just mentioned. Things like immorality, adultery. I won't be in bondage. I won't be controlled by drugs and by all sorts of things that we know are wrong. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12... We read that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. It means even things that we have a right, or at least we feel we have a right, we will not be brought into bondage. We will control ourselves even in these ways. And we will be willing to deny ourselves in service to others. Philippians chapter 2. Back over in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 talks about the way that we act and the way that we do things. Verse 3 says, <clears throat> Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with hum humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That means we are going to be in control of our pride. We're going to be in control of our intentions. We're going to be in control of our egos of how big we think about ourselves and whenever we are in control of that when we control ourselves to see that i'm not center of the universe i'm not the big man on campus that makes things like romans 14 a whole lot easier over romans 14 when we're talking about uh, denying ourselves for the sake of a weaker brother we're talking about denying ourselves. We're around those that see things that maybe aren't wrong, but they are just convinced they are wrong. We won't have a problem denying ourselves in that. Verse 14 says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And over in verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother, a brother stumbles. Whenever we are getting control of ourselves and we are displaying that self-control, we need to display that control over our physical bodies, over ourselves. But we need to display that control over our thoughts and over how big we think about ourselves. But as I said, there is also an improper way to practice self-control. There is a wrong self-control that Paul warned about over in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 20 through 23, he said, If you have died with Christ to the, to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These matters which have to be sure an appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, in self-abasement, and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. 
<coughs> Paul was talking about here these, these self-made human traditions that, that sometimes get levied against people who, if we are going to be righteous, you certainly can't do this because it, it's what I think. And Paul's saying, don't be careful with that. Be careful with that because that is an improper exercise of self-control. Even though it might appear wise, it doesn't do anything to actually limit the indulgences of the flesh. You can still be, still be completely out of control even though you are trying to make yourself look to the rest of the world like you are in full control. And then over in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we go, we go on to read a little more about the same matter. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 through 5, Paul talks about how that sort of attitude, that sort of thought, would be a sign in Timothy's day of a general apostasy that was coming. It says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Paul was telling, warning Timothy about these men and, and the Essenes, a, a certain sect of the Jews, were, were especially noted for this who would come in and say, if, if you are going to be righteous, if you are going to serve God, you must be single. You must not marry. You must live a, a celibate life. And, and you can't eat these meats. You can't do these things. And, and Paul was telling him, was telling Timothy to beware because that sort of thought process, even though we are to be mindful of our weaker brethren, and even though we are to, to do everything that we can and deny ourselves not to make them stumble, that sort of thought process that says, I'm going to take my traditions and my thoughts and level them out as what you need to be doing and set fences up around my, my sacred cows, if you will, and you can't touch them. That sort of thought is an improper way to practice self-control, and it leads to apostasy. It leads to turmoil and trouble within the church. And again, these things might appear spiritual, but are oftentimes contrary to the truth. What we see is there is a very real need to control the self. And it is a natural component to growing in the knowledge of Christ. If you would, go ahead and open your songbooks just a moment, or for in just a moment we'll be singing number 321. 321, Jesus, I come. I want you to be thinking about the words of this song, but, but also be thinking about our need for self-control in our lives. We need faith, because faith without works is, uh, or excuse me, we need virtue because faith that works is dead and, and the, that virtue is our striving for excellence is going to strive us to do good works. But just like faith without works is dead, let me tell you, faith without self-control is dead. Faith without self-control is meaningless. So to increase in knowledge, to increase in, in, in everything that this, that this library of information about God's will and about what God desires for us, as we increase in that knowledge, if we don't add, if we don't add self-control 
to these to, to ourselves to this grace that we are trying uh, or this character that we are trying to develop in Christ then all that information is nothing more than academic it's nothing more than than vain and useless words unless we are willing to to apply it to our lives through the efforts of self-control if you remember back over in Romans Paul was speaking of the the turmoil that he was in because he was ensnared. He was enslaved to sin. He was held captive. He he knew what he wanted to do. He knew the right things that he wanted to do, but he knew that he was not doing what was right because he was being dominated by what was wrong. He was being dominated by sin. And yet, freedom came through Christ. In John chapter 8 and verse 36 says that the son therefore shall make you free you shall be free indeed. That's what we're going to be singing about here just in a second. When we sing these words Jesus I come out of my bondage out of my shameful failures and loss out of the fear and dread of the tomb. We've come out of a world of despair and, and, and disgust and into a world of hope and love and light. But it comes through Christ. It is the gift that we receive of eternal life through Christ. The only way to be found in Christ or, or, to be, or to come through Christ is to enter into the same circumstances which He entered into, sacrificing ourselves, being buried in baptism, making ourselves like Him. And in doing so, we continue steadfastly. So I ask you this, this morning. Maybe in your life you've, you've come to realize that, that I'm, I'm in Paul's situation. I am captivated. I am, I am ensnared by sin and I have not done anything that Christ desires of me to do, but I want to. I want to follow Him, but I know I can't do it on my own. Christ says He stands, He, he is here and He is beckoning and He desires for you to come to Him. To come to Him in belief that He is as we read in Mark 16, 16, we just believe and be baptized to come to him in repentance. As we read in Acts 17 and verse 30, though he, he one time would wink his eye at these, these lives that we live, but today he demands us to turn away from it and to turn towards him, to come to him in confession, Romans 10, verse 10. Because it's through that confession we can receive salvation, a life that we 